Hi, James Ponawazic is the Times' new chief TV critic, and he's here to talk with us about, yes, TV and how he does his job. Bonus don't miss TV series recommendations in the end. I'm Susan Lehman. So, James, congratulations on the new job. And tell us, how do you watch? Do you binge watch, continuous eight-hour-a-day viewing at home at the desk? Tell us about your viewing habits. Kind of all of those things. As a critic, I I still watch a lot of things through screeners, which means often sort of pre-binging, you know, watching three or four episodes of a show before it premieres for review. Some networks send more episodes in advance than others uh, with new broadcast fall shows. It might be as little as, as the pilot. Other times, you know, I'll get entire seasons of things more and more often now. I just reviewed Casual, this this new sort of indie comedy series on Hulu that sent all 10 episodes of its first 10 episode season. So there's that. So like, do you get up in the morning and put your PJs on and get out a big bowl of popcorn and start watching? Or how does it work? It's nowhere near that glamorous. (laughs) You know, it it kind of depends on what the rest of my workload is. Uh, Honestly, I tend to be more of a morning writer. If uh, I'm on deadline for a piece, if if I'm writing something, I'll tend to try to write more first thing in the morning when I'm more caffeinated. Um, Watching screeners, taking notes, that sort of thing is, is better for me, you know, in the later half of the day when my brain is kind of winding down. Basically, the answer is there's lots of different kinds of watching that I do. There's the very attentive, taking notes, watching of something that I know that I'm going to review. And then a tremendous amount of TV criticism is just, you know, triage, you know, deciding what you're going to pay attention to and, you know, what you don't. If there's something that looks like it might be interesting or, you know, might not, I might pop in a DVD or a screener while I'm doing other things and kind of, you know, there's a lot of filtering that goes on. I still watch things for for fun. I'm currently, uh, uh, we're in the middle of a a family um, binge watch of of Lost for the first time with my two kids uh, who have never seen it before. How old are your kids? Uh, They're 11 and 14 years old. Uh, so they, they've heard my wife and I talk about the show, you know, over and over again while it was on and they were too young to watch it. It's like this, the secular bar mitzvah in our house, you know, <laughs> finally you're old enough to have this tradition you passed on to you. Yeah. Is there anything they're not allowed to watch? Oh, tons of things. Yes. My kids are very self-guarding in the sense of somehow having grown up with, you know, a strong sense of what's appropriate or inappropriate for them and Sometimes, you know, when my wife and I will put on a a movie for family movie night that, you know, we watched 30 years ago and have sort of forgotten about the level of nudity or whatever in it, our kids will shoot (laughs) us, looks like, you know, what the hell, mom and dad? (laughs) The authorities are right outside. We don't watch Game of Thrones together, you know, any sort of like extremely violent or, you know, sexual stuff like that. And the kids would be tremendously embarrassed to watch with that, you know, a lot of that stuff with their parents anyway. Although, although my kids have been exposed to a lot of media, maybe because I'm somebody who's very immersed in media, I'm very conscious of, you know, limiting the hours and, and being hands-on with the content and what they do and don't watch. So, whereas when I was a kid, it was, I was like entirely unsupervised, <laughs> you know, uh, and watched probably way too much television and stuff that by the standards of the time was 
very inappropriate for me and over my head. And look where I am now. You know, look where it got me. So. <laughs> That was one of my questions. How do you get to be a TV critic anyway? I mean, there, there's no career path for it, and it honestly wasn't something that I, I sought out per se. I had been writing for Salon, where I, I knew you as my editor, if, if, I, if I can say that here. You can. Uh, that's how I know how to say Panawazak as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's one of the perks of the job. Uh, but so I was a media columnist at Salon for a couple of years, and through sort of a network of somebody who knew somebody who read me, got a call from Time Magazine who said that they were interested in a television critic. And I had watched a lot of television. I had written on various television things, you know, kind of in a general tangential sense. It wasn't necessarily a career that I'd considered, but I'd always been very interested in writing about pop culture and about media and, you know, both critically as an art and in terms of how it reflects the various obsessions and fixations of the culture, uh, you know, so I said, yeah, and, and ended up doing it. Um, you know, it's not like you you go to school for it. <laughs> you know, there, there isn't even necessarily the, 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 the sort of level of training that you might have if you're interested in becoming, you know, an art critic or something like that. I guess the way you, you, you become a TV critic is sort of become interested in it and be in the right place uh, at the right time. It's, it's probably different now for people who are kind of coming into arts journalism now and there are all these recapping sites and so on and so forth that, you know, people come to it that way. You know, I, I honestly kind of fell into it. Muppet bashing. In one of your first reviews for The Times, you took a hard look at the Muppets. I'm not here to make friends with Muppets, you told me that. Okay, <laughs> so let's talk about why you are here. What do you aim to do as a TV critic? Do you plan to do the job differently than predecessors or focus on different kinds of TV fare? This is not something that, you know, just applies to The Times in particular. But, you know, I think one thing that historically TV criticism has been, which is changing now as, as television is changing, uh, is that it's sort of been looked at as, you know, an inferior cousin to movies, to, to books, whatever, that it was something that, you know, respectable publications kind of held with tongs or kind of wrote about, you know, sociologically, like, you know, what does this tell us about Joe Lunchpail, who, you know, watches these things. Um, you know, I, I think that as the artistic ambitions of TV have changed, it's simply lent itself and it's it's deserved to be written more about, you know, more as as art the way that you would film or or, or, or books or whatever. Another thing that, that personally I would like to do more of uh, at the times that I've done in my past criticism is to focus not simply on reviewing this and that and that new television show that comes out, but trying to do more sort of wide-ranging essays, drawing connections between different programs that are new on the air or have been on the air, uh, and, you know, kind of what currents you can identify in the culture through then, uh, looking at events in the news through the frame of culture. I mean, I think one, one thing that... that uh, I wrote just recently for The Times was an essay on Donald Trump, a fellow who's been getting some attention in the media. He obviously was, for years, the host of The Apprentice on NBC, and, and I came at him, this, this 
now politician who has long been a you know figure in pop culture uh, from the standpoint of what can you see? What can, what does it tell you about his campaign and his style of campaigning that you can see through his experience on reality television, his performance on reality TV, and sort of the genre, the the language, the rules, and the tactics of reality TV in general? That's the kind of thing that I'd like to do more of. Which to get a little pretentious about it, that is that's criticism, you know, rather than just reviewing. Do. See your job to tell us what to see or to better understand what we have seen. I think my job is is a little bit to recommend to people what to see because, you know, one thing that you've got in television now is that there's just so much more of it than there, there ever used to be. There's so many cable channels and so much broadcast programming and there's Amazon and Netflix and so on and so forth. People do want a guide to that. To me, an ideal review doesn't tell you you should see this or, you know, you should see that. But it gives you a, a, a critic's particular passionate opinion. And from that, you can get a sense of whether a thing's for you or not. You know, I think the, the more interesting thing to me is not saying something is good or bad, but why it's good or why it's bad. What's it saying that's notable or different? You know, I, I do think a lot of that is more about, you know, writing, kind of explaining, uh, unpacking something that we all already have seen. This is kind of a way that that TV criticism has been changing lately. I, th- I think with uh, the rise of the internet, people have become more interested in recaps, in kind of an ongoing conversation that's Well, there's um, also, you know, as you say, there's so much to see that you can't see everything, so you actually need a recap. I also think that, you know, where... TV reviewing used to be seen as just kind of a a consumer guide, you know, which it still is. There's more and more interest, maybe arguably even more interest among reviewers to going back and reading a review or criticism of something that they've already seen. It makes the dialogue around TV more like, you know, what we used to have around literature, where, you know, you wouldn't just, you know read a review of the new Harper Lee, you know, like when, when, when that came out this past summer. But there would be a conversation then afterwards about, you know, what did we all think of the new racist Atticus Finch? And, you know, I, <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think that, A, as TV has gotten better, and B, as there are all these, you know, electronic media for, for talking about it, it's, it's become a little more like that. And, and that, to me, is a little more interesting than just thumbs up, thumbs down stuff. All right. So let's talk shows. Are there standout shows this season, observable trends, anything you particularly love? There's been relatively little on the new broadcast calendar that I've been that excited about. I honestly, legitimately wanted the Muppets to be good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's a behind-the-scenes look at the Muppets. You know, our personal lives, relationships. (laughs) Couldn't do that. No, No way. Especially if I was doing a show with my ex. Piggy is your ex, right? Yeah, yeah, we, we're, we're broken up. I was a huge fan of various iterations of the Muppets over the years, and I just felt they broke Kermit's spirit and turned him into a depressed middle-aged man. But the bright spot is that this is actually a really good fall right now for returning series, shows that were promising last year and, and have come back with really strong sophomore seasons. I really love The Leftovers on HBO right now, which is this weird show based on a a Tom Parada novel that is 
basically about the the aftermath of a mysterious incident in which sort of rapture-like 2% of the world's population just disappears. So many of our loved ones were lost three years ago. The disappearance of 2% of the world's population. The DSD has proclaimed a federal holiday of remembrance. The whole town, the same place at the same time. Somebody's going to get hurt. They've developed it into this really just captivating, well-acted, well-written, well-thought-out, a little bit melancholy drama about, you know, what it's like to be a survivor. The aftermath that something like this has on the world's culture, not just, you know, the practical thing of, you know, what happens to families when they've they've suffered a loss or whatever, but what does something like this do to the belief system of the world, you know, religions, cults, and so on. That's been really fascinating. Uh, the new season of uh, The Nick, which is coming back on Cinemax, a really tremendous show. It's, it's a hospital drama. We've, we've seen a lot of hospital dramas in the past, but this one is set in 1901 in Manhattan at the Knickerbocker Hospital, uh, starring Clive Owen as a, a brilliant but cocaine-addicted surgeon uh, who is is a pioneer in experimental medicine. And experimental medicine at that time, of course, involved a great deal of incisions and fluids and <laughs> experiments that went wrong. Numb the nerves in the spine between the thoracic vertebrae 6 and 7 so as to stop the brain from learning of the pain. I intend to inject a 2% cocaine solution directly into Mr. Gentile's spinal canal, low enough not to affect the heart and lungs, high enough to dull everything below. It's not for the weak of stomach, but it's a really (laughs) fascinating show. A really good period drama doesn't give you the sense that it's showing you the past, like you're looking at something in the museum. It gives you the sense that for these characters, they're living in the present and they're on the verge of an exciting future. The Nick does that really, really well. What do you think? Is this the golden age of television? Uh, To me, saying that it's the golden age of TV right now just means that there's more good TV than there was probably at any given point in time in the past. And I think that's definitely true. And it's partly a function of the fact that that there's more of it. So, you know, mathematically, <laughs> the chances are just greater. There, there are like 400 uh, scripted shows on television and streaming now. That's a problem for lots of people. The head of FX, John Langdorf, yeah. has been talking about why, why there's so much television and that's a problem. Could you talk about why that is controversial? Uh, it's this concept that's come up in TV over the, the past year or so that some people have called peak TV. There's so much TV being made now by so many outlets that it's unsustainable. And it's kind of two different questions. Uh, one is for the networks. There's just this notion of so many people are trying to make TV and dividing the audience smaller and smaller that it's just it's like a internet bubble that's going to burst. You're, you're not going to have enough viewers and enough revenue from them to uh, sustain the business model. And there's going to be, you know, a, a shaking out eventually. That might happen or, you know, that might not. For viewers, there's definitely a sense among people, I think, of, of just being, you know, overwhelmed where in the past there was, the, you know, the classic, you know, 500 channels and nothing's on uh, phenomenon. More and more, when I talk to people about television now, they'll there are say, "Five hundred okay, channels and five hundred." I don't have time to, you know, catch up with everything that's that's on my TiVo, and you know, a lot of people don't even bother to watch something when it originally airs now because they don't have the time for it. So they start looking for things that they should stream on Netflix. So, 
that's definitely overwhelming. But net net, I think it's you know better for average people because they have better choices to to select from. You know, selfishly, I'd like to think that it makes people like me, you know, important as guides because, you know, because I get paid you. to watch, you know, television and there's not enough time for me. You know, somebody with a, a real job that actually contributes to society, <laughs> they got, they've, they've got one or two hours a day and it's really harder and harder to focus that. Reality TV. Let's talk about reality TV. You wrote that reality TV, like Donald Trump, is a love-hate proposition. And love to hate. There is kind of like a, I don't know, reflexive, smug superiority to reality TV out there. Um, there's a lot of great reality television, like like The Amazing Race has been a great show for, for years, uh, uh, Survivor, Shark Tank uh, on ABC. I'll watch that with my kids sometimes. When you walked in here, I thought cha-ching, a-ling-a-ding-dong. I'll give you 275 but I want 51%. The horror. Give her a deal. If I offered you $30 million, would you take it? I'm somebody who knows like nothing about business, and that dumb show makes the process of entrepreneurship and coming up with an idea and you know deciding how your distribution and marketing are going to work is fascinating. There's a lot of very crappy reality television, and there's a lot of reality television that sort of relies on pushing your buttons and making you hate it to get you addicted to it. There have been stretches when reality TV has been some of the most exciting stuff on, on TV. So I'm, I'm not too good for it. That leads nicely into a question. What are your guilty pleasures on TV? Honestly, I don't believe in guilty pleasures. If something is pleasurable, then there's nothing to feel ashamed of about it. Having said that, what's the you know disposable crap that I like to watch, <laughs> if, if we put it that okay. way? If you sit me down at my mom's house when I'm visiting her on vacation and I flip on HGTV and there's like a House Hunters or a House Hunters International. I prefer more of a ranch style type home. I know Ugo likes a split level, but I despise them. I'm already seeing some stairs right here. Right. And that's okay. They also need a second master for his family from Nigeria. Okay, I really like the size of this. Size. I will watch like one after like a chain smoker <laughs> you know like if i'm not pried away from the couch i, I you know i'll end up watching 10 or 12 of those in a row the, the, there is something about sitting there and i'll admit i'm i'm not a good person just judging the decisions of somebody else shopping for a house that's addictive to me so in that sense it's a guilty pleasure because it makes me feel guilty about myself um tell us what what do you think is the best tv series ever as, as a card-carrying member of the TV Critics Association, I think I'm probably supposed to say The Wire, which is a fantastic show, arguably the best drama ever, fantastic examination of American urban society from top to the bottom. And, and it is great. Honestly, I would say probably the answer that I would give you is, is the same answer that I have given you for a long time, uh, which is The Simpsons. That's partly because the comedy aside, the great performances aside and so on, it's a show about television and it's a show that's about everything. I have a feeling that there is a Simpsons quotation that applies to everything. It speaks to every aspect of human experience. That's the sign of, uh, of greatness. Is there a sleeper series now that you'd like to use this moment to call insiders' attention to? A show that I just reviewed called Manhattan on WGN America. It's about the Manhattan Project, 
in World War II. Our work is so classified, the vice president doesn't know we exist. What is the project? They still haven't told me. This war will be fought on the battlefield, but peace will be won with brains, not brawn. You're building an atomic bomb. We prefer to call it a gadget. It's a very under-the-radar show because it's on a very under-the-radar network. Probably three people watched it during its first season. I was one of them. It's a really fascinating show about science and discovery and the the trade-offs that people make in wartime for, you know, security versus freedom because it's about these eggheads working in this pressure cooker environment in Los Alamos trying to build the bomb, you know, they believe before the, the, the Nazis get it, while working within the confines of sort of, you know, a very rigid, hierarchical, suspicious military state, which is kind of antithetical to science. Beautifully shot, very well written. Maybe we can kick up the viewership to like six this season. You were at Time Magazine for 16 years. Are there any reviews you regret or shows you just got totally wrong? Does that happen? It's not so much that a review is wrong as a different opinion later becomes right. <laughs> the thing about TV is that, you know, it's it's serial. It's 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 ongoing. There have certainly been shows that I, I panned or reviewed badly, you know, at the beginning that I later came to love. I think Parks and Recreation is an example of one of those on NBC. Uh, where it started out, it came across as this kind of tone-deaf imitation of The Office, but set in a different environment. Uh, and the characters were sort of unlikable, and the, the, the humor felt a little mean. And it, it eventually became this, this very, you know, warm and, you know, brilliant show. When a show, you know, proves me wrong or proves that it has more potential than I, you know, originally saw in it, the great thing about TV is that you can come back to it and, you know, uh, correct those errors. You do have to be open-minded enough to come back to something and, you know, hear, you know, this has gotten really good, take another look at it and, and do that. And sometimes you're going to end up reversing yourself on it because, you know, the show's changed or you just, you kind of were focusing on the wrong things the first time. There you go. So not only do you have to watch 400 scripted TV shows, you have to rewatch all of the old ones that you might have seen improperly. Oh, God, it's again. endless. A big part of being a TV critic, like the job is knowing what not to watch because, you know, you can't watch everything. There's a lot of like process of elimination and a lot of forcing yourself to go back and catch up on things that you didn't have time to. So is there anything that struck your attention um, as you watch the fall seasons about cultural trends or anxieties or collective ideas about things? This most recent fall season has been so uninteresting and unadventurous. I think over, over the past year or so, there's been a very interesting attention to diversity, uh, both racially in in casting and just sort of getting multiple cultural perspectives into shows. It's been pushed in part, you know, for I think business reasons because you know shows like Shonda Rhimes's, you know, Scandal and so forth that have had these, you know, interesting multicultural casts have been very commercially successful. As a result. A lot of the more interesting shows on TV now are shows like Empire. I'm gonna be bigger than you'll ever be, bigger than Dad too. 
Lucius Lyon is Empire. Without him, the company is nothing. We can be a family again. Game over. <laughs> There haven't been a lot of black family dramas on television, and it's just, it's more interesting if you're going to do a primetime soap to do it about people who haven't necessarily had their stories told in in primetime soaps before. You know, a larger trend that I think we're seeing out of that in a lot of ways is something that we see in our politics, which is America coming to terms with the fact that it's not a monolithic country. Uh, It's not a monochromatic country, uh, that demographics are changing, different people have power, different people, kinds of people have importance. And I think it is something that goes beyond just, you know, sort of a, a, you know, a PC, you know, let's cast lots of different kinds of people, although that's worthwhile. You know, I I think the really interesting thing, it's sort of the flip side of, you know, the, you know, anti-immigration rhetoric in politics and, you know, the Donald Trump candidacy and all that. You know, it's America trying to deal with the fact that, you know, America's makeup is different now. We didn't even talk about Transparent. That was my favorite show of 2014 and that it's not just about, you know, race or whatever, but there are a lot of different kinds of sexual and gender identity in the country. And, and, and certainly just a few years ago, you didn't see transgender dealt with on TV much at all, except as, you know, kind of a, you know, a punchline. Transparent's a beautiful, beautiful show. Another one that's going to be having a second season in December, I believe. And you got time to catch up on if you missed it the first time around. You mentioned that at night sometimes you just watch for fun. What do you just watch for fun? Empire, which we just mentioned, is, you know, I, I'm not sure I would call it the, you know, the best show on TV right now, but it's probably like just the most fun to watch because it's so insane and surprising. And it's, it's one show that, you know, my wife and I kind of make a point of watching the night that it airs. My kids and I, uh, we've sort of discovered that reality television has taken the role that, you know, family-friendly sitcoms used to in the past. And so a lot of the shows that we'll watch together will be stuff like the current season of Survivor. But I mean, a lot of the shows that I watch for fun are, you know, they're, they're shows that I'm paying attention to, you know, critically. Like, you know, Game of Thrones is a show that, you know, is is always dominating the, you know, hot button outrage culture, you know, cultural conversation. But it's also just like a tremendously fun, insane show with dragons in it that, I you know, I just I watch because it's a blast to watch. All right. Bonus for insiders before we wind down the top three don't miss fall shows this season. I don't know if this is, uh, you know, cheating, but I, I, I would return to The Leftovers and The Nick, which I mentioned earlier. And another favorite uh, returning show of mine uh, that the, the sophisticated Times audience, uh, I believe, is up to, you know, even though it has subtitles, uh, is a, a French zombie series called The Returned. Come here, Ça va, maman? Moi, j'étais à ton enterrement. Je t'ai vu dans ton cercueil. Je te fais peur. Moi, je me fais peur. It's this spooky, mysterious, moody show about this little French town where people who have died over two years, three years, four years, decades ago, suddenly just start showing up 
on their own their old doorsteps and uh, meeting their their old relatives and and becoming reintegrated back into the community. What does it do to a family? What kind of you know fights and arguments do you have when you know your old boyfriend shows up and you were you you know you've you've remarried? Uh, it, it turns out you know dead people showing up can create a lot of relationship problems. Uh, so that, that, that's a terrific one. I highly recommend that. James Ponowazek is the Times' new chief TV critic. Thank you for joining us. I'm Susan Lehman, and Jocelyn Gonzalez produces the Insider Podcast. We'll be back next week. Thank you. Thank you.